Science is about exploring, and the only way to uncover the secrets of the universe is to go and look. The Interplanetary Podcast, the exploration of space, for the benefit of all humankind. Your host, in Guildford, England, Matthew Russell. There we go, a quote from Brian Cox there. And the reason why I'm uh, choosing Brian Cox is this is a quick little episode before another episode from myself and Jamie, uh, an interview with Andrew Cohen, who um, co-wrote the really awesome program, The Planets. And the reason why I'm interviewing him today is because the Folio Society have just brought out a new version of the Planets book, which looks absolutely awesome. I'm going to try and get myself a copy for Christmas, and it's probably a very good Christmas present if you're wondering if any science geeky mates or just normal mates who want to, to have a bit of wonder thrown into their life, maybe you could think about giving it to, for them for Christmas. Anyway, without any further ado, I'm going to give you my interview that I did earlier this week with the marvellous Andrew Cohen. Ecoute. You're listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. And I bring that message to you from inside my O'Neill cylinder in space somewhere. So I'm joined on the Interplanetary Podcast by Andrew Cohen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more than pleased to have you as a guest. So there is a new version of the book, The Planets, that accompanied the BBC series uh, that's just come out recently on the 10th of October and you're heavily involved with that so I've got my initial question is why is there a new version of the book and and what can people expect from it and uh, yeah what was your involvement with the whole the planets BBC thing so I'm I'm the head of BBC Studios science unit and we make lots of uh, the science documentaries that uh, the BBC broadcasts uh, and we've made almost all of Brian Cox's uh, series over the years. So we've had a, an amazing uh, working relationship with him for many, many years now. Um, we made The Planets back in 2019, uh, and there was the accompanying book that uh, I wrote with Brian, um, and I've written a number of books with Brian over the years. But um, w- what's really lovely is that the Folio Society have uh, decided to produce this just beautiful copy um, the edition of the book, uh, which, as you say, is uh, has just come out, and so it just kind of it it, it takes the uh, original beautiful book and, and turns it into something that just feels incredibly special and, and something that I'm incredibly proud uh, to have my name associated with. So yeah, it's the type of person that would be excited by this book. Is someone basically very interested in what the latest information is about the solar system and etc.? Is that is that right? That's partly right, but I think what we tried to do with this project, with the book and the series, was very much do something perhaps that that had never been done before in such an ambitious way, which was rather than look at the solar system in its contemporary sense, in what we're learning about it today, we wanted to take that information and to turn that into the story of the solar system. Now, that sounds something that's sort of kind of really quite simple, but actually telling the life story, the biography of the solar system is not something that has been done 
um, across its sort of five billion years um, in, 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 in this way on television or, or in print. And so that was really the impetus. And, and what was interesting about that actually is that it, it, it felt like a, a, a really bold ambition for the project. But actually, when you look at the um, all of the mission aims of many of the uh, missions that have gone out to explore all over the solar system, actually understanding its history is really often what is lying underneath that. Um, and so it gave us this ability to tap into huge amounts of contemporary science and then turn that with all this amazing team that, that worked on the project into almost a, 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 a soap opera-esque story, a, a story that is really telling the, the, the character stories of each and every planet in the solar system. I mean, just the style of the of the program itself is 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 quite unique. I think I, I actually genuinely think that Brian Cox is one of the the greatest science communicators that we have in the present day. I think he's absolutely brilliant, but he has a particular style, doesn't he? And particularly on this, because I, I, we had him on the podcast, and he can talk very very quickly and very very and move through gears of science information quicker than anyone I've ever kind of talked to before. But with something like the planets, he's he's very methodical in the way that he's sort of moving through uh, ideas. And was that is that a conscious thing to kind of keep maybe Brian Cox slightly contained so that he's going through like quite simple ideas quite slowly so that they so they're more impactful. Yeah, having worked with him for so many years, I don't think I can contain Brian Cox. So um, uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think- I don't think that's ever our ambition. I, I think that um, uh, we we wanted to to do something different, and we all and and obviously, kind of Brian, you know, leads this in 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 terms of how we change the storytelling, and so he has an amazing ability to move from the what I'd say is the sort of the emotional impact of of a story understanding something <clears throat> i give you an example so when when you when you understand mars's story when you understand that mars was a water world that's an that's an emotional story because you suddenly relate to that planet in a way that we understand our own planet that we understand the earth there's something very powerful about that loss that mars has has been through over the last 4 billion years so the way that we constructed the stories and the way that brian delivered them so so powerfully and, and and equally in the book as well um was to to drive that immersive story so the the graphics for instance that, that we use in the series um they're not expositional they're not trying to explain anything you're they're, they're immersive you are seeing a world as it was transforming but then you have to flip that and this is where brian is as you say one of if not the best size communicator on the planet at doing this he flips that from a piece of storytelling to a piece of evidence and he takes you from from an emotional reaction to that amazing pleasure of understanding how we know this um and i think that sort of balance is one of the things that we drive through uh all, all of the work that we do together yeah, I, and I, d- I definitely do notice that 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 you you know that the story isn't just made up. That he's he's continually linking it. Yeah, like you say, back to the evidence. 
he drives that with us, you know, in an incredibly powerful way. Obviously, you know, we're documentary makers. We're most of us are scientifically trained, um, but to, I think to work with uh, sort of a working scientist like Brian is, but at the same time, someone who is sort of also kind of driving the storytelling. So, so the ambition of the content that we drive into these series to share with audiences, um, we try and make that as high as possible because we know that there's an appetite to really delve deep in these series and to understand, you know, perhaps at a, uh, at a level that, that, that sometimes the media is a little bit sort of scared to go into. As you were growing up, what were the kind of influences that you were having that kind of sent you down this path of this type of docu documentary making? Presumably a lot of the documentaries you make are these kind of science, broad science documentaries. What were your inspirations and who were your inspirations as you were growing up? So it's, it's interesting the way these, these things work because um, I, I wanted to be a doctor when I was going through my education uh, and uh, I screwed up my physics A-level. Um, which is ironic considering how many programs <laughs> I've made about physics and how many arguments I've, I've had with kind of people like Brian Cox about sort of, should we explain this way or that way, when actually my career would have been completely different if I managed to get any physics down on, on that A-level paper. But anyway, that was, so, <clears throat> so sort of television was a, a route that I never planned to get into, but when I did begin to move into it there had always been very inspirational documentaries um back in my childhood and actually it wasn't the it wasn't particularly the space documentaries that inspired me it was it was the human interest ones actually so i was a big fan of qed um which I, any of your listeners to remember which was a i an incredibly powerful uh science strand on the bbc but there was really driven by human stories um, more than anything else. And probably my biggest inspiration as a science communicator by a mile was um, Oliver Sacks. Uh, and I'd just consumed all of his books. I, anything that sort of he did, I just felt his way. And I guess there were parallels to Brian in this of, of combining deep insight with deep emotion was something that really resonated in me as a storyteller um and, and and that's something that i guess i've always wanted to drive into the projects that i'm in, in, involved in that combination science is very far from being a cold subject and I, my passion is to make sure that it touches people as well as educates them do you ever have any disagreements when you're when you're deciding, you know, what what the best path is to get an emotional story across, or is there is there any particular good examples of it? Projects like this are built on disagreements. They're built on, you know, really impassioned conversations from all of the team involved about how to have the maximum impact uh, on on audiences. And I think there's a there's a really interesting thing, particularly when you're drawing together so that we there's not a review paper really that is written that tells you that pulls together all the evidence and tells you this is the story of the solar system over five billion years it doesn't exist so the brilliance of the journalism that goes into a series like this from from you know an, an incredible team is to take all of these fragments 
you know, of evidence that are out there to speak to many, many scientists and advisors in doing that and to pull that into a story that has an absolute foundation of, of fact. But to do that, there's a, there's a balance there. And I think the balance is that sometimes we push a little bit too hard in the production process to turn it into a sort of a story that works. We're storytellers. And it's absolutely right that we get pulled back because our story doesn't necessarily fit the facts. And so that nuance, that balance is something that is running through the whole time our scripting process. And I think that tension is what ultimately delivers something that stands up so well, that, that can both be a story and also can be absolutely validated. Um, so, so those sort of conversations, those, I want to call them arguments, but tensions go on. And, and then I guess the other sort of area where you, you have a real kind of creative, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fri friction or a kind of drive is around the level of complexity that is right for mainstream audiences. And again, I think, you know, Brian is, is, is very driven about that. Um, we're very driven about that, but what is, what is right for an audience that can range from, you know, an eight year old kid to a 80 year old person that can range, you know, across all of the different sort of demographics across massive educational differences and so finding a sweet spot that gives you know the people who already love the solar system and know loads about it something from a series like this is really important to us but at the same time we also don't want to put up loads of barriers that mean people who may know very little at all can't come to it and so that's a that's a wrangle um but but one that we obviously try and get right and make it as a sort of opened-armed and yet at the same time challenging experience for the audience to come to. Yeah, I, I've often thought about that, particularly with programs, you know, that, like the ones you mentioned, QED, Horizon, all those, all those programs. How hard it is to judge, you know, how how complex and how simple you make it, knowing that your audience is this huge BBC audience at a particular and and that. Yeah, I, I I do think that it does it supremely well. The planets, in terms of the, that, it's got this. Yeah, I'm watching it, and of course, I'm, I'm I do the interplanetary podcast, and 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 so a lot of what's been said, obviously, I've I've heard before, but I'm still watching it, and there's the story that's keeping me interested, and there is still some new kind of bits of bits of insight that I've never had before, and therefore it keeps me excited but i know that i also then talk to someone at work who's got no real interest in space and they've also really enjoyed the program and i think that that's 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 just must be incredibly hard to do it is but if it's if it's working for, for you then we're obviously cutting something right and i think you you, you know you you're obviously endlessly learning and i was i was i worked on horizon i was the editor of horizon for five amazing years um, that's where I first started working with Brian Cox and we sort of, we, you know, it's a, like anything in, in, in a sort of creative industry, you, you are, you're working your way through to find those hopefully sweet spots that, that really resonate with, with the audience. When it, when it comes to 
the sort of intersection where you've got um, where the facts are coming from, essentially, where you've got NASA and the European Space Agency. How, how strong are the kind of, presumably, because you've been doing this, like, like you said, with Horizon and then the planets and with Brian Cox, is there a kind of open phone call that you can just, that you've got all these really brilliant contacts at NASA who've got, who have, you know, have the data, have the, have actually maybe even can point you in the right direction for where this story should be going? You know, what are the, what's that sort of network of communications with the big science agencies? It sort of works almost at two levels, really. We always have science advisors on a series like this who, who, uh, give us sort of so much um, support and help in navigating through the sort of the, the most kind of careful of of lines, so that you know what we end up with can can be genuinely trusted uh, by our audiences. So they they do an amazing job, and that that's pretty much happens on every single series. So they're sort of the kind of inner inner circle. But one of the amazing things for working like an organisation like the BBC is the, the, the privilege that it gives you to speak to people. So yeah, there were, you know, it's very rare that we ask for advice or a phone call and scientists from around the world don't, don't give us the time to talk through and help us navigate our way through. So it, it feels like a, a, a really, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great thing that we feel so supported by the scientific community in producing something like this and they see the value of it um which really helps us make the best possible books and and television series yeah so in in terms of how the folio society have expanded what you did with the planets and with the original book what have have they did did they do it all on their own or, or was this again in consultation with you and brian in terms of i think they 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 are sort of kind of have a brilliant sort of skill set that um so i i wasn't in, involved in it there's a there's a new introduction that's been put into the book um uh which is uh really beautifully written um but no this is something about the the sort of the the actual sort of publishing of it so the the physicality of the book the way the photographs have been uh kind of recreated it's it's becoming it's a very special thing a very beautiful thing and i guess in the in the same way that we're talking before about the sort of emotional impact that we're trying to have that, that science you know i'm going to reference Feynman now but that idea that it is sort of kind of there's something beautiful in understanding this is turning science into an object that is incredibly beautiful and i'm i'm really really proud to be associated with um and i hope that in 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 how beautifully it's put together it, it actually makes the process of absorbing the story um even even more powerful yeah i mean i've i've noticed there's been there has been a shift i mean the, the sort of that youtube generation of people that will sort of make a sort of five minute video about visualizing the the age of the universe through some weird thing has become more it's become it's become more of a thing as it's become easier to do i suppose there's the barrier of entry for people to make actually quite compelling content so i suppose as a as a documentary maker uh, do you feel that pressure that, that, that there's all these other 
forms of media that actually do stuff like that really successfully and and how do you incorporate that with what you do on you know in in, in an institution like the bbc i, I mean I, lo I love all that that stuff you won't be surprised to hear me say that and i think i never fail to be surprised by the quality of, of science communication that people just off their own backs sort of get out and and do so i think all of that is amazing but i think what what we're finding is that people still want that sort of deep absorption that an hour's documentary can give you actually and that a sort of a filmic immersion can give you so i think i think yeah we used to sort of you know, a few years ago to talk about sort of the, the the kind of the end of sort of you know the documentary form because it felt as if everyone is just going to want to consume everything in you know a few minutes I think we've seen the opposite happen, actually. Um, what is different, though, is that you have to continually adapt your tonality not to feel, you know, just a bit old and dusty. Um, and I think that is often driven by understanding how, you know, audiences are consuming short form as well. I think there's perhaps just a touch little sort of, there's, there's less patience perhaps now in terms of something kind of of the pacing of of the kind of projects that we make um you just have to be a bit more direct you have to be um a bit more perhaps aggressive in the way that that we edit and drive each of the the films what's brilliant at the moment i suppose is it's it's so easy it seems to be so much easier to visualize things i mean you know the data that we actually have from the solar system isn't particularly pretty uh, most of the time. And so the, the sort of simulations of, of it used to be incredibly difficult. Like if you look at something like Carl Sagan's Cosmos, it, it looks, you know, it looks, looks terrible by today's standards, but was really exciting at the time. And I'd, I'd, that, that sort of, for me, that sort of started with, um, the original, how, how did, how is the planets, this, this version, the, the 2019 version and, and the, the stuff that you did with Brian Cox. Did, is that in any way related to the original The Planet series that the BBC did in the 90s, was it? It's, or maybe 99, it? I think it was 99, was it, the original Planet series? So I I've, I still can't believe I can even say this, but I've been in the science unit for 20, almost 28 years now, um, from starting um, as, a, as a, a runner to having the privilege of, of, of running it for the last few years. Um, so I've been around with all of these series. And there's a... In the same way that the BBC Natural History Unit, you know, you kind of uh, has a cycle where you return back to particular subjects um, every sort of five or ten years. The planets is is one of those for us, really. And what was interesting is that the the ninety nine series um, was very much about the human exploration of the solar system. It was it was driven by the the human story effectively not of of human space travel but of our exploration so it, it had extraordinary interviews uh, with people from all over the world um who had been involved in you know some of the most extraordinary missions and we, we were at that time you're probably only talking about what if it was 90 like 30 years of exploration do you know what i mean that was before we'd, we'd barely even found an exoplanet by then so so we we're talking about a sort of very different age where you had that sort of first person ability to tell the story of voyager or 
uh, what's the uh, what's the the uh, Russian um, Venus missions Venera? Yeah, that, Venera. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so that was the brilliance of that series, and it, it is very much a document of our first first thirty years of, of space travel. When we came back to the planets, sort of ten or so years after that, which was the next major landmark series was Wonders of the Solar System uh, that we made with Brian. I think we felt at that stage that people had forgotten just how amazing what was going on above your head was and the energy that Brian brought to that at that stage was extraordinary. I think, you know, it completely transformed um a part of the generation's relationship with space, which was an incredibly satisfying thing to do. I remember when we were making models of the solar system, we sort of, you, you sometimes get a sense that something's going to be kind of all right. It's going to be kind of pretty good. And we it was just, it was just a series that, that as we looked at the material coming back, it was, it was incredibly exciting. And we were talking about, well, what is success going to look like for us? And I, I remember saying to the team at one point, I just want a, a, a new, paper article that says that telescope cells have gone through the roof that would be like for me that will be success um and i remember i can't remember it was after the first or second episode but there was an article about exactly that and they sort of increased 400 percent or something yeah, well, in the U. Uh, without it's, it's one of the reasons why i bought a telescope again i hadn't, hadn't had one for ages and there's there's a scene in it where where Brian Cox looks into the telescope and, and he's looking at Jupiter, isn't there? And and it's, I was thinking, well, can you can actually do that? You can actually see it. I, I have to buy a telescope. So and, and then when and then you, when you see Jupiter or Saturn for the first time in your own telescope, it does seem kind of crazy. So yeah, I have I have that program to thank for my the exact ex, that exact experience. Yeah, and it was that series that led to the birth of stargazing live and that really sort of tangible sense of just go outside and look up you know jupiter is above your head right now and you don't realize it that amazingly bright star is actually the biggest planet in the solar system and so i think there was a real simplicity at that time to our sort of mission in terms of engaging an audience with the solar system but when we came back again, you know, eight, nine years later with the planets, we knew we had to do something different again. And that's what led us to this idea of, uh, of a life story, a biography of the solar system, um, that, that became such a sort of exciting, uh, storytelling challenge. With that last series of the planets, was there one planet that you enjoyed the most? Was there one that you sort of, when you were telling this kind of you know, biography of the, of that particular planet or planets, was there, was there a, was there a particular favorite episode where it's like, oh yeah, this one just really, really works. We're right at the sweet spot here. I, I, the Mars episode particularly resonated with me. Um, that may be predictable. I don't know. I think for a number of reasons though, I think the story itself is so surprising. You know, the idea that that the red planet was once blue is just a really amazing thought. And, and to be able to take audiences back to that world, to see, you know, the, the parallels between 
how Mars would have looked three and a half, four billion years ago and how the Earth looked at the same time, to realize that the very same ingredients that led to life on Earth four billion years ago or so were absolutely in place on a water world Mars at that time. And so just to have that tantalizing moment where you go, well, it might have happened there. You know, it really might have happened there is I think just an incredibly powerful story. And then you combine that with, with this loss, with this idea of where's it gone? Why did it disappear? Why is our planet the way it is today? And yet Mars is this barren, pretty much dead rock. Um, and so that idea of, of a sibling story, um, and the demise of that sibling, I just, yeah, I found really, really powerful. When you, when you do something like that, do, do you also have a kind of ecologist's kind of head on as well, where you're thinking, you know, you, that, that you are showing in some ways the fragility of, of, of what it is to be a planet and, and, and a, and a life sustaining planet that, that there's that story underlying in there as well. That's absolutely right. And I think the other shift that I think we've tried to make in the way that we tell stories is, is ultimately any story of the solar system is really a story of the earth, um, and our place in the solar system and understanding our place in the solar system. So that's not just about understanding just how violent the solar system is. You know, we, we don't really feel that we don't really, you know, kind of from our, our place here under our kind of lovely gray rainy skies, but that bringing that violence, um, and that unpredictability to, uh, sort of people's minds, I, I think is, is, is really important, but also there's there's something even more overt, isn't there, than that. You can't help but look at the story of Venus and understand something of the story of our planet, our climate, and what we're doing to it. And so we never want to sort of kind of ram those parallels too hard into our storytelling because I think they're more powerful if you sort of are allowed to find them yourself. Um, you know, equally with, with Mars, you can't help, but look at Mars and understand our own planet in a different way, understand its preciousness, understand its luck, you know, in terms of the stability that's occurred here over billions of years, which is incredibly unusual in terms of solar system history or in terms of planetary history. So. Yeah, we want those resonances to come through. We want people to have a different relationship with where they're sitting by exploring across the whole of the solar system. Yeah, yeah, I'd, and 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 yeah, I, I think that's it. Always does that for me. I I I sit there with things like the story of Mars, and I actually uh, there's a little bit of me that gets stressed slightly by it because you think, yeah, yeah, we are just a a rock hurtling through an incredibly violent solar system and, and uh, yeah, that it's, we, we're surrounded by evidence of that. And it's sometimes easy when you're walking around the supermarket to forget that there is all that stuff going on 
on top. So yeah, these programs are absolutely brilliant. And actually that, that wonders of the solar system, the, uh, that the, the 2000, 2009 one, I, I remember that being really kind of big at the time and having that really kind of profound effect on on everyone. I think it, when I went back to those YouTubers, I was just thinking then it, it probably had a really big effect on the way that people make those kind of YouTube videos because it was so visually exciting as well, wasn't it? That, that series. It it was, and it did this it did this thing of sort of basically saying you can experience the solar system here on Earth, and and so we're able to go to extraordinary locations around the the, the planet with Brian to sort of to to do that. So it, again, it was it was bringing our Earthbound experience sort of much closer to just these alien worlds that are out there. You know, it's kind of difficult to imagine particularly the, the moons like Titan or Io, or you know, they are so beyond our imagination. And, you know, our imagery is good of, good of them, but it's not, it's not what you want when you sort of want to be immersed in those worlds. So I think our ability to use Earth analogs in the storytelling is something that was really helpful in that series. And it's something that we've played with since, since then as well. It's, uh, I, I always have a little chuckle thinking that maybe you and you and Brian have sat down and you've chosen lots of different countries and little venues that you might want to visit and somehow work out a script where you can, uh, where you can build that into the story that you're telling is, is, is that what you do or, or is it, or is it just happy coincidences that you go, oh yeah, we need to tell the story of Saturn's rings being like ice Icebergs, and then therefore we're going to have to go somewhere where we can sit on some icebergs. So we we definitely don't sit around going where would we like to get on holiday. That's definitely not part of the production process. You know, we obviously not going to be surprised to hear me say this, but you know, we want to be um, as you know efficient with the budget that we have to maximise what we get on screen, and also we want to be as efficient as possible to keep our carbon footprint down and. That's something that you know, becomes increasingly important to us to push even harder year on year, and you'll you'll probably see that in our next project. Um, so, so we look for places that you know give us maximum efficiency and minimum travel. It's why you'll perhaps notice that we're particularly keen on Iceland. Um, there are plenty of analogs and locations and backdrops uh that take you all over the solar system simply by going to iceland so um we filmed a lot in iceland over the years um and uh had some amazing amazing shoots there that the teams have led with brian i know that brian's a bit of a kind of sci-fi nut and and but you didn't mention that earlier on in terms of uh, in terms of your influences is 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 there a sort of element of because I know a lot of people got into science communication because they were into things like Star Trek and and stuff like that. Is it is does any of those kind of sci-fi references any of the kind of way that you talk about um, the actual science itself influenced by by sci-fi and 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 has that sort of speculative sci-fi edge to it? Massively, I think is the answer to that. And you know, we're looking for inspiration and references all over the place as we look at the storytelling and the visualization and you know how you create scale 
on the small screen is a really interesting thing. If you, you see a whole sphere of a planet, you don't really get, get any sense of scale. But if you have a sort of glimmer of it starting to come over the top of the camera, you know, a part of the planet, you have the sort of same as the Death Star entering, um, not the Death Star, I'm, not getting my, I'm going to get told off for getting my Star Wars references wrong. But you know the, the the big ship coming over. Yeah, yeah, I get the, the, yeah the uh, star destroyer. I don't know. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, or you know when you're looking at um, one of the sequences I love in the planets is the creation of Saturn's rings by the destruction of a of a moon. You know when it kind of uh, when it passes what's called the Roche limit, isn't it? And it just gets pulled apart by the gravity of Saturn. And that is a, that's a, that's a Death Star moment. Uh, so we've got, you know, in the, the, all of the team that are involved in a series like this have got endless sci-fi references that are bubbling in their heads as has, has Brian as well. So it's, it's, it's a pleasure to take those and hopefully share a little bit of that, uh, cinematic, uh, impact with our audiences. Yeah. Cause I, 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 this has come up as a kind of theme in a lot of the kind of interviews that I've done is that. It's sometimes that science is in competition with with science fiction. So sometimes, when a science fact comes out, that the science community is blown away by. And a really good example of that was the picture of a black hole. Right. So obviously, the science community is going, "Oh, it's mind blowing," and they've had their minds blown. But then you show it to the general public, but they've seen Interstellar, and therefore they've seen the sci-fi version of it, which looks a hell of a lot better. And it's like, so you, do you ever feel like that, 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 that somehow that's, that science fiction sometimes does make it harder to, because it's almost like seeing everything in some kind of like super real vision. I think it is harder. And one of the tricks I think that we use to sort of drive home the wonder is, is, is are the real references. So, you know, take Titan for an example. It's, um, you know, the, the, the pictures are amazing, but they're not great um, in, in terms of the resolution, in terms of sort of feeling yourself kind of on the ground of somewhere like Titan. But by combining those and sort of leading the audience to sort of have that veracity, but then merging that into a VFX, an, an accurate, scientifically accurate VFX sequence, I think helps us have a different experience to pure science fiction, um, where you sort of, it's a, your suspension of disbelief kind of takes you off into those worlds where we all do the opposite of that. We do the belief and the imagination at the same time. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Well, well, thanks very much for, for, for joining me, Andrew. I, I feel as though I've probably learned more than my listeners because I, I, I love talking to people like you because you're obviously an, an expert and, and have done it for so long, this, this kind of idea of, of communicating very, very difficult ideas and keeping people's interest in something that's actually hugely important. So th thanks very much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having the me. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space so a special mega thanks to my mega patrons that is Stuart lawson and justin roberts and of course the mighty patreon gang of ian holland 
Dr. Bob Hodges, Malta Keisling, Alden Vala, Marissa Davis, Ben Guthrie, Mark Shearn, Nicholas Gillenstein, Tyrell McAllister, Jean Watchtanik, Mark Huber, Seth H., Kate Seal, James King, Adam French, Mark Kelly, and Steve Croucher. Thank you so much. Without that support, this podcast would still not be happening. So thank you very much. You are legends. And if you want to take part in Patreon, just go to Patreon forward slash Interplanetary and uh, you can join our Discord server and join in the conversation. Much more content coming up soon. And uh, me and Jamie will be back with a full episode very shortly. Bye!